The Boats of the Glen Carrig. Being an account of their adventures in the strange places of the earth, after the foundering of the good ship Glen Carrig, through striking upon a hidden rock in the unknown seas to the southward, as told by John Winterstraw, gentleman, to his son James Winterstraw in the year 1757, and by him committed very properly and legibly to manuscript. Chapter 13 The Weed Men Now, on that night, when I came to my watch, I discovered that there was no moon, and, save for such a light as the fire threw, the hilltop was in darkness. Yet this was no great matter to trouble me, for we had been unmolested since the burning of the fungi in the valley, and thus I had lost much of the haunting fear which had beset me upon the death of Job. Yet though I was not so much afraid as I had been, I took all precautions that suggested themselves to me, and built up the fire to a goodly height, after which I took my cut and thrust, and made the round of the camping place. At the edges of the cliffs which protected us on three sides, I made some pause, staring down into the darkness and listening, though this latter was of but small use because of the strength of the wind which roared continually in my ears. Yet, though I neither saw nor heard anything, I was presently possessed of a strange uneasiness, which made me return twice or thrice to the edge of the cliffs, but always without seeing or hearing anything to justify my superstitions. And so presently, being determined to give way to no fancifulness, I avoided the boundary of the cliffs, and kept more to that part which commanded the slope, up and down which we made our journeys to and from the island below. Then, it would be near halfway through my time of watching, there came to me out of the immensity of weed that lay to leeward, a far distant sound that grew upon my ear, rising and rising into a fearsome screaming and shrieking, and then dying away into the distance in queer sobs, and so at last to a note below that of the winds. At this, as might be supposed, I was somewhat shaken in myself to hear so dread a noise coming out of all that desolation, and then suddenly the thought came to me that the screaming was from the ship to leeward of us, and I ran immediately to the edge of the cliff overlooking the weed and stared into the darkness. But now I perceived, by a light which burned in the hulk, that the screaming had come from some place a great distance to the right of her, and more, as my sense assured me, it could by no means have been possible for those in her to have sent their voices to me against such a breeze as blew at that time. And so for a space I stood nervously pondering and peering away into the blackness of that night. Thus, in a little I perceived a dull glow upon the horizon, and presently there rose into view the upper edge of the moon, and a very welcome sight it was to me. For I had been upon the point of calling the boatswain to inform him regarding the sound which I had heard, but I had hesitated, being afraid to seem foolish if nothing should befall. Then, even as I stood watching the moon rise into view, there came again to me the beginning of that screaming, somewhat like to the sound of a woman sobbing with a giant's voice, and it grew and strengthened 
until it pierced through the roar of the wind with an amazing clearness, and then slowly, and seeming to echo and echo, it sank away into the distance, and there was again in my ears no sound beyond that of the wind. At this, having looked fixedly in the direction from which the sound had proceeded, I ran straightway to the tent and roused the bosun, for I had no knowledge of what the noise might portend, and this second cry had shaken from me all my bashfulness. Now the bosun was upon his feet almost before I had made an end of shaking him, and catching up his great cutlass which he kept always by his side, he followed me swiftly out on to the hilltop. Here I explained to him that I had heard a very fearsome sound which had appeared to proceed out of the vastness of the weed continent, and that, upon repetition of the noise, I had decided to call him, for I knew not but that it might signal to us some coming danger. At that, the boatswain commended me, though chiding me in that I had hesitated to call him at the first occurrence of the crying, and then, following me to the edge of the leeward cliff, he stood there with me, waiting and listening. Perchance there might come again a recurrence of the noise. For perhaps something over an hour we stood there very silent and listening, but there came to us no sound beyond the continuous noise of the wind, and so by that time, having grown somewhat impatient of waiting, and the moon being well risen, the boatswain beckoned to me to make the round of the camp with him. Now, just as I turned away, chancing to look downward at the clear water directly below, I was amazed to see that an innumerable multitude of great fish, like unto those which I had seen on the previous night, were swimming from the weed continent towards the island. At that I stepped near the edge, for they came so directly towards the island that I expected to see them close inshore, yet I could not perceive one, for they seemed all of them to vanish at a point some thirty yards distant from the beach and at that, being amazed both by the numbers of the fish, and their strangeness, and the way in which they came on continually, yet never reached the shore, I called to the boatswain to come and see, for he had gone on a few paces. Upon hearing my call, he came running back, whereat I pointed into the sea below. At that, he stooped forward and peered very intently, and I with him, yet neither one of us could discover the meaning of so curious an exhibition, and so for a while we watched, the boatswain being quite so much interested as I. Presently, however, he turned away, saying that we did foolishly to stand here peering at every curious sight when we should be looking to the welfare of the camp, and so we began to go the round of the hilltop. Now, while he had been watching and listening, we had suffered the fire to die down to a most unwise lowness, and consequently, though the moon was rising, there was by no means the same brightness that should have made the camp light. On perceiving this, I went forward to throw some fuel onto the fire, and then, even as I moved, it seemed to me that I saw something stir in the shadow of the tent, and at that I ran towards the place, uttering a shout and waving my sword yet I found nothing, and so feeling somewhat foolish, I turned to make up the fire as had been my intention, and while I was thus busied, 
the boson came running over to me to know what I had seen, and in that same instant, there ran three of the men out of the tent, all of them waked by my sudden cry. But I had not to tell them, save that my fancy had played me a trick and had shown me something where my eyes could find nothing, and at that, two of the men went back to resume their sleep. But the third, the big fellow to whom the boson had given the other cutlass, came with us, bringing his weapon. And though he kept silent, it seemed to me that he had gathered something of our uneasiness, and for my part I was not sorry to have his company. We came to that portion of the hill which overhung the valley, and I went to the edge of the cliff, intending to peer over, for the valley had a very unholy fascination for me. Yet no sooner had I glanced down than I started and ran back to the bosun and plucked him by the sleeve, and at that, perceiving my agitation, he came with me in silence to see what matter had caused me so much quiet excitement. Now, when he looked over, he also was astounded and drew back instantly. Then, using great caution, he bent forward once more and stared down, and at that the big seaman came up behind us, walking upon his toes, and stooped to see what manner of thing we had discovered. Thus, we each of us stared down upon a most unearthly sight, for the valley all beneath us was a swarm with moving creatures, white and unwholesome in the moonlight, and their movements were somewhat like the movements of monstrous slugs, though the things themselves had no resemblance to such in their contours. But they minded me of naked humans, very fleshy and crawling upon their stomachs, yet their movements lacked not a surprising rapidity. And now, looking a little over the boson's shoulder, I discovered that these hideous things were coming up out from the pit-like pool in the bottom of the valley, and suddenly I was minded of the multitudes of strange fish which we had seen swimming towards the island, but which had all disappeared before reaching the shore, and I had no doubt but that they had entered the pit through some natural passage known to them beneath the water. And now I was made to understand my thought of the previous night, that I had seen the flicker of tentacles, for these things below us had each two short and stumpy arms, but the ends appeared divided into hateful and wriggling masses of small tentacles, which slid hither and thither as the creatures moved about the bottom of the valley, and at their hinder ends, where they should have grown feet, there seemed other flickering bunches. But it must not be supposed that we saw these things clearly. Now, it is scarcely possible to convey the extraordinary disgust which the sight of these human slugs bred in me, nor would I do I think I could. For were I successful, then would others be like to wretch even as I did, the spasm coming on without premonition, and born of very horror. And then, suddenly, even as I stared, sick with loathing and apprehension, there came into view not a fathom below my feet, a face like to the face which had peered up into my own on that night as we drifted beside the weed continent. At that I could have screamed had I been in less terror, for the great eyes, so big as crown pieces, the bill like to an inverted parrot's, and the slug-like undulating of its white and slimy body bred in me the dumbness of one mortally stricken, and, 
Even as I stayed there, my helpless body bent and rigid, the bosun spat a mighty curse into my ear, and leaning forward smote at the thing with his cutlass. For in the instant that I had seen it, it had advanced upward by so much as a yard. Now at this action of the bosun's I came suddenly into possession of myself, and thrust downward with so much vigor that I was like to have followed the brute's carcass, for I overbalanced and danced giddily for a moment upon the edge of eternity, and then the bosun had me by the waistband, and I was back in safety. But in that instant through which I had struggled for my balance, I had discovered that the face of the cliff was near hid with the number of the things which were making up to us, and I turned to the bosun, crying out to him that there were thousands of them swarming up to us. Yet he was gone already from me, running towards the fire, and shouting to the men in the tent to haste to our help for their very lives. And then he came racing back with a great armful of the weed, and after him came the big seamen, carrying a burning tuft from the campfire. And so in a few moments we had a blaze, and the men were bringing more weed, for we had a very good stock upon the hilltop, for which the Almighty be thanked. Now scarce had we lit one fire, when the bosun cried out to the big seamen to make another, further along the edge of the cliff, and in the same instant I shouted, and ran over to that part of the hill which lay towards the open sea, for I had seen a number of moving things about the edge of the seaward cliff. Now here there was a deal of shadow, for there were scattered certain large masses of rocks about this part of the hill, and these held off both the light of the moon and that from the fires. Here. I came abruptly upon three great shapes moving with stealthiness towards the camp, and behind these I saw dimly that there were others. Then, with a loud cry for help, I made at the three, and as I charged they rose up on end at me, and I found that they overtopped me, and their vile tentacles were reached out at me. Then I was smiting and gasping, sick with a sudden stench, the stench of the creatures which I had come already to know. And then something clutched at me, something slimy and vile, and great mandibles champed in my face, but I stabbed upward and the thing fell from me, leaving me dazed and sick, and smiting weakly. Then there came a rush of feet behind, and a sudden blaze, and the bosun crying out encouragement, and directly, he and the big seamen thrust themselves in front of me, hurling from them great masses of burning weed which they had borne, each of them, up a long reed. And immediately the things were gone, slithering hastily down over the cliff edge. And so presently I was more my own man again, and made to wipe from my throat the slime left by the clutch of the monster. And afterwards I ran from fire to fire with weed, feeding them. And so a space passed, during which we had safety for by that time we had fires all about the top of the hill, and the monsters were in mortal dread of fire, else we had been dead, all of us, that night. Now a while before the dawn, we discovered for the second time since we had been upon the island that our fuel could not last us the night at the rate at which we were compelled to burn it, and so the bosun told the men to let out every second fire, and thus we staved off for a while the time when we should have to face a spell of darkness, and the things which, at present, the fires held off from us. 
And so at last we came to the end of the weed and the reeds, and the bosun called out to us to watch the cliff edges very carefully, and smite on the instant that anything showed, but that, should he call, all were to gather by the central fire for a last stand. And after that he blasted the moon, which had passed behind a great bank of cloud. And thus matters were, and the gloom deepened as the fire sank lower and lower. Then I heard a man curse, on that part of the hill which lay towards the weed continent, his cry coming up to me against the wind, and the boatswain shouted to us to all have a care, and directly afterwards I smote at something that rose silently above the edge of the cliff opposite to where I watched. Perhaps a minute passed, and then there came shouts from all parts of the hilltop, and I knew that the weed men were upon us, and in the same instant there came two above the edge near me, rising with a ghostly quietness, yet moving lithely. Now the first I pierced somewhere in the throat, and it fell backward. But the second, though I thrust it through, caught my blade with a bunch of its tentacles, and was like to have snatched it from me, but that I kicked it in the face, and at that, being, I believe, more astonished than hurt, it loosed my sword and immediately fell away out of sight. Now this had taken, in all, no more than some ten seconds. Yet already I perceived so many as four others coming into view a little to my right, and at that it seemed to me that our deaths must be very near, for I knew not how we were to cope with the creatures, coming as they were so boldly and with such rapidity. Yet I hesitated not, but ran at them, and now I thrust not, but cut at their faces and found this to be very effectual, for in this wise disposed I of three in as many strokes. But the fourth had come right over the cliff edge, and rose up at me upon its hinder parts, as had done those others when the boson had succored me. At that I gave way, having a very lively dread. But hearing all about me the cries of conflict, and knowing that I could expect no help, I made at the brute. Then, as it stooped and reached out one of its bunches of tentacles, I sprang back and slashed at them, and immediately I followed this up by a thrust in the stomach, and it collapsed into a writhing white ball that rolled this way and that, and so, in its agony, coming to the edge of the cliff, it fell over, and I was left sick and near helpless with the hateful stench of the brutes. Now, by this time, all the fires about the edges of the hill were sunken into dull, glowing mounds of embers, though that which burnt near to the entrance of the tent was still of a good brightness. Yet this helped us but little, for we fought too far beyond the immediate circle of its beams to have benefit of it. And still the moon, at which now I threw a despairing glance, was no more than a ghostly shape behind the great bank of cloud which was passing over it. Then, even as I looked upward, glancing as it might be over my left shoulder, I saw with a sudden horror that something had come anigh me, and upon the instant I caught the reek of the thing, and leapt fearfully to one side, turning as I sprang. Thus was I saved in the very moment of my destruction, for the creature's tentacles smeared the back of my neck as I leapt, and then I had smitten once and again, and conquered. 
Immediately after this, I discovered something to be crossing the dark space that lay between the dull mound of the nearest fire, and that which lay further along the hilltop, and so, wasting no moment of time, I ran towards the thing and cut it twice across the head before ever it could get upon its hind parts, in which position I had learned greatly to dread them. Yet no sooner had I slain this one than there came a rush of maybe a dozen upon me, these having climbed silently over the cliff edge in the meanwhile. At this I dodged and ran madly towards the glowing mound of the nearest fire, the brutes following me almost so quick as I could run. But I came to the fire the first, and then a sudden thought coming to me, I thrust the point of my cut and thrust among the embers and switched a great shower of them at the creatures. And at that I had a momentary clear vision of many white, hideous faces stretched out towards me, and brown, champing mandibles which had the upper beak shutting into the lower, and the clumped, wriggling tentacles were all aflutter. Then the gloom came again, and immediately I switched another and yet another shower of the burning embers towards them, and so directly I saw them give back, and then they were gone. At this, all about the edges of the hilltop, I saw the fires being scattered in like manner, for others had adopted this device to help them in their sore straits. For a little after this, I had a short breathing space, the brutes seeming to have taken fright. Yet I was full of trembling, and I glanced hither and thither, not knowing when some one or more of them would come upon me. And ever I glanced towards the moon, and prayed the Almighty that the clouds would pass quickly, else should we be all dead men. And then, as I prayed, there rose a sudden, very terrible scream from one of the men, and in the same moment there came something over the edge of the cliff fronting me, but I cleft it, or ever it could rise higher, and in my ears there echoed still the sudden scream which had come from that part of the hill which lay to the left of me. Yet I dared not to leave my station, for to have done so would have been to have risked all. And so I stayed, tortured by the strain of ignorance and my own terror. Again, I had a little spell in which I was free from molestation, nothing coming into sight so far as I could see to right or left of me, though others were less fortunate, as the curses and sounds of blows told me. And then abruptly there came another cry of pain, and I looked up again to the moon and prayed aloud that it might come out to show some light before we were all destroyed, but it remained hid. Then a sudden thought came into my brain, and I shouted at the top of my voice to the bosun to set the great crossbow upon the central fire, for thus we should have a big blaze, the wood being very nice and dry. Twice I shouted to him, saying, Burn the bow! Burn the bow! And immediately he replied, shouting to all the men to run to him and carry it to the fire. And this we did and bore it to the center fire, and then ran back with all speed to our places. Thus in a minute we had some light, and the light grew as the fire took hold of the great log, the wind fanning it to a blaze. And so I faced outwards, looking to see if any vile face showed above the edge before me, or to my right or left. Yet I saw nothing, save as it seemed to me, once a fluttering tentacle came up, a little to my right. 
but nothing else for a space. Perhaps it was near five minutes later that there came another attack, and in this I came near to losing my life, through my folly in venturing too near to the edge of the cliff. For suddenly there shot up from the darkness below a clump of tentacles and caught me about the left ankle. Immediately I was pulled to a sitting posture, so that both of my feet were over the edge of the precipice, and it was only by the mercy of God that I had not plunged head foremost into the valley. Yet, as it was, I suffered a mighty peril, for the brute that had my foot put a vast strain upon it, trying to pull me down, but I resisted, using my hands and seat to sustain me, and so, discovering that it could not compass my end in this wise, it slacked somewhat of the stress and bit at my boot, shearing through the hard leather and nigh destroying my small toe. But now, being no longer compelled to use both hands to retain my position, I slashed down with great fury, being maddened by the pain and the mortal fear which the creature had put upon me. Yet I was not immediately free of the brute, for it caught my sword blade, but I snatched it away before it could take a proper hold, mayhaps cutting its feelers somewhat thereby, though of this I cannot be sure, for they seemed not to grip around a thing, but to suck to it. Then, in a moment, by a lucky blow I maimed it, so that it loosed me and I was able to get back into some condition of security. And from this onwards we were free from molestation, though we had no knowledge but that the quietness of the weedmen did but portend a fresh attack. And so, at last, it came to dawn. And in all this time, the moon came not to our help, being quite hid by the clouds which now covered the whole arc of the sky, making the dawn of a very desolate aspect. And so, as there was a sufficiency of light, we examined the valley, but there were nowhere any of the weedmen. No, nor even any of their dead, for it seemed that they had carried off all such and their wounded. And so we had no opportunity to make an examination of the monsters by daylight. Yet, though we could not come upon their dead, all about the edges of the cliffs was blood and slime, and from the latter there came ever the hideous stench which marked the brutes. But from this we suffered little, the wind carrying it far away to leeward, and filling our lungs with sweet and wholesome air. Presently, seeing that the danger was past, the boatswain called us to the center fire, on which burnt still the remnants of the great bow, and here we discovered for the first time that one of the men was gone from us. At that, we made search about the hilltop, and afterwards in the valley and about the island, but we found him not. Chapter 14 in communication. Now of the search which we made through the valley for the body of Tompkins, that being the name of the lost man, I have some doleful memories. But first, before we left the camp, the bosun gave us all a very sound tot of rum and also a biscuit apiece, and thereafter we hasted down, each man holding his weapon readily. Presently, when we were come to the beach which ended the valley upon the seaward side, the bosun led us along to the bottom of the hill, where the precipices came down into the softer stuff 
which covered the valley. And here we made a careful search. Perchance he had fallen over and lay dead or wounded near to our hands. But it was not so. And after that, we went down to the mouth of the great pit, and here we discovered the mud all about it to be covered with multitudes of tracks, and in addition to these and the slime, we found many traces of blood, but nowhere any sign of Tompkins. And so, having searched all the valley, we came out upon the weed which strewed the shore nearer to the great weed continent, but discovered nothing until we had made up towards the foot of the hill where it came down sheer into the sea. Here I climbed onto a ledge, the same from which the men had caught their fish, thinking that if Tompkins had fallen from above, he might lie in the water at the foot of the cliff, which was here maybe some ten or twenty feet deep. But for a little space I saw nothing. Then suddenly I discovered that there was something white down in the sea away to my left, and at that I climbed farther out along the ledge. In this wise, I perceived that the thing which had attracted my notice was the dead body of one of the weed men. I could see it but dimly, catching odd glimpses of it as the surface of the water smoothed at whiles. It appeared to me to be lying curled up and somewhat upon its right side, and in proof that it was dead, I saw a mighty wound that had come near to shearing away the head, and so, after a further glance, I came in and told what I had seen. At that, being convinced by this time that Tompkins was indeed done to death, we ceased our search. But first, before we left the spot, the bosun climbed out to get a sight of the dead weed man, and after him the rest of the men, for they were greatly curious to see clearly what manner of creature it was that had attacked us in the night. Presently, having seen so much of the brute as the water would allow, they came in again to the beach, and afterwards were returned to the opposite side of the island. And so, being there, we crossed over to the boat to see whether it had been harmed, but found it to be untouched. Yet, that the creatures had been all about it, we could perceive by the marks of slime upon the sand, and also by the strange trail which they had left in the soft surface. Then one of the men called out that there had been something at Jove's grave, which, as will be remembered, had been made in the sand some little distance from the place of our first camp. At that we looked all of us, and it was easy to see that it had been disturbed, so we ran hastily to it, knowing not what to fear. Thus we found it to be empty, for the monsters had digged down to the poor lad's body and of it we could discover no sign. Upon this, we came to a greater horror of the weedmen than ever, for we knew them now to be foul ghouls who could not let even the dead body rest in the grave. Now after this, the bosun led us all back to the hilltop, and there he looked to our hurts, for one man had lost two fingers in the night's fray. Another had been bitten savagely in the left arm, while a third had all the skin of his face raised in wheels where one of the brutes had fixed its tentacles. All of these had received but scant attention because of the stress of the fight, and after that, through the discovery that Tompkins was missing. 
Now, however, the bosun set to upon them, washing and binding them, and for dressings he made use of some of the oakum which we had with us, binding this on with strips torn from the rolls of spare duck which had been in the locker of the boat. For my part, seizing this chance to make some examination of my wounded toe, the which indeed was causing me to limp, I found that I had endured less harm than seemed to me, for the bone of the toe was untouched, though showing bare. Yet when it was cleansed, I had not overmuch pain with it, though I could not suffer to have the boot on, and so bound some canvas about my foot until such time as it should be healed. Presently, when our wounds were all attended to, the which had taken time, for there were none of us altogether untouched, the boatswain bade the man whose fingers were damaged to lie down in the tent, and the same order he gave also to him that was bitten in the arm. Then the rest of us he directed to go down with him and carry up fuel, for that the night had shown him how our very lives depended upon a sufficiency of this. And so all that morning we brought fuel to the hilltop, both weed and reeds, resting not until midday, when he gave us a further tot of rum, and after that set one of the men upon the dinner. Then he bade the man, Jessup was his name, who had proposed to fly a kite over the vessel in the weed, to say whether he had any craft in the making of such a matter. At that, the fellow laughed and told the boatswain that he would make him a kite that would fly very steadily and strongly, and this without the aid of a tail. And so the boatswain bade him set to without delay, for that we should do well to deliver the people in the hulk, and afterwards make all haste from the island which was no better than a nesting place of ghouls. Now, hearing the man say that his kite would fly without a tail, I was mighty curious to see what manner of thing he would make, for I had never seen the like, nor heard that such was possible. Yet he spoke of no more than he could accomplish, for he took two of the reeds and cut them to a length of about six feet, then he bound them together in the middle so that they formed a St. Andrew's cross, and after that he made two more such crosses. And when these were completed, he took four reeds, maybe a dozen feet in length, and bade us stand them upright in the shape of a square, so that they formed the four corners. And after that he took one of the crosses, and laid it in the square so that its four ends touched the four uprights, and in this position he lashed it. Then he took the second cross and lashed it midway between the top and bottom of the uprights, and after that he lashed the third at the top, so that the three of them acted as spreaders to keep the four longer reeds in their places, as though they were for the uprights of a little square tower. Now, when he had gotten so far as that, the boatswain called out to us to make our dinner, and this we did, and afterwards had a short time in which to smoke. And while we were thus at our ease, the sun came out, the which it had not done all day, and at that we felt vastly brighter, for the day had been very gloomy with clouds until that time, and what with the loss of Tompkins and our own fears and hurts, we had been exceeding doleful. But now, as I have said, we became more cheerful and went very alertly to the finishing of the kite. At this point it came suddenly to the boatswain that we had made no provision of cord for the flying of the kite, 
and he called out to the man to know what strength the kite would require, at which Jessup answered him that maybe ten yarn senate would do, and this being so, the bosun led three of us down to the wrecked mast upon the further beach, and from this we stripped all that was left of the shrouds, and carried them to the top of the hill, and so presently, having unlaid them, we set two upon the senate, using ten yarns, but plating two as one, by which means we progressed with more speed than if we had taken them singly. Now, as we worked, I glanced occasionally towards Jessup, and saw that he stitched a band of the light duck around each end of the framework which he had made, and these bands I judged to be about four feet wide, in this wise leaving an open space between the two, so that now the thing looked something like to a punchinello show, only that the opening was in the wrong place, and there was too much of it. After that he bent on a bridle to two of the uprights, making this of a piece of good hemp rope which he found in the tent, and then he called out to the bosun that the kite was finished. At that, the bosun went over to examine it, the which did all of us, for none of us had seen the like of such a thing, and if I misdoubt not, few of us had much faith that it would fly, for it seemed so big and unwieldy. Now I think that Jessup gathered something of our thoughts, for calling out to one of us to hold the kite, lest it should blow away, he went into the tent and brought out the remainder of the hemp line, the same from which he had cut the bridle. This he bent on to it, and giving the end into our hands, bade us go back with it until all the slack was taken up, he, in the meanwhile, steadying the kite. Then, when we had gone back to the extent of the line, he shouted to us to take a very particular hold upon it, and then, stooping, caught the kite by the bottom and threw it into the air, whereupon, to our amazement, having swooped somewhat to one side, it steadied and mounted upwards into the sky like a very bird. Now, at this, as I have made mention, we were astonished, for it appeared like a miracle to us to see so cumbrous a thing fly with so much grace and persistence, and further we were mightily surprised at the manner in which it pulled upon the rope, tugging with such hardiness that we were like to have loosed it in our first astonishment, had it not been for the warning which Jessup called to us. And now, being well assured of the properness of the kite, the bosun bade us to draw it in, the which we did only with difficulty because of its bigness and the strength of the breeze. And when we had it back again upon the hilltop, Jessup moored it very securely to a great piece of rock, and after that, having received our approbation, he turned to with us upon the making of the Senate. Presently, the evening drawing near, the bosun set us to the building of fires about the hilltop, and after that, having waved our good nights to the people in the hulk, we made our suppers, and lay down to smoke, after which we turned to again at our plating of the senate, the which we were in very great haste to have done. And so, later, the dark having come down upon the island, the bosun bade us take burning weed from the center fire, and set light to the heaps of weed that we had stacked round the edges of the hill for that purpose. And so, in a few minutes the whole of the hilltop was very light and cheerful, 
and afterwards, having put two of the men to keep watch and attend to the fires, he sent the rest of us back to our senate making, keeping us at it until maybe about ten o'clock, after which he arranged that two men at a time should be on watch throughout the night, and then he bade the rest of us turn in, so soon as he had looked to our various hurts. Now, when it came to my turn to watch, I discovered that I had been chosen to accompany the big seaman, at which I was by no means displeased, for he was a most excellent fellow, and moreover a very lusty man to have near, should anything come upon us unawares. Yet we were happy in that the night passed off without trouble of any sort, and so at last came the morning. So soon as we had made our breakfast, the bosun took us all down to the carrying of fuel, for he saw very clearly that upon a good supply of this depended our immunity from attack. And so for the half of the morning we worked at the gathering of weed and reeds for our fires. Then, when we had obtained a sufficiency for the coming night, he set us all to work again upon the senate, and so until dinner, after which we turned to once more upon our plating. Yet it was plain that it would now take several days to make a sufficient line for our purpose, and because of this, the boatswain cast about in his mind for some way in which he could quicken its production. Presently, as a result of some little thought, he brought out from the tent the long piece of hemp rope with which we had moored the boat to the sea anchor, and proceeded to unlay it until he had all three strands separate. Then he bent the three together, and so had a very rough line of maybe some hundred and eighty fathoms in length. Yet, though so rough, he judged it strong enough, and thus we had this much less the Senate to make. Now, presently we made our dinner, and after that for the rest of the day we kept very steadily to our plating, and so, with the previous day's work, had near two hundred fathoms completed by the time that the boatswain called us to cease and come to supper. Thus it will be seen that the counting all, including the piece of hemp line from which the bridle had been made, we may be said to have had at this time about four hundred fathoms towards the length which we needed for our purpose, this having been reckoned at five hundred fathoms. After supper, having lit all the fires, we continued to work at the plating, and so, until the boatswain set the watches, after which we settled down for the night, first, however, letting the boatswain see to our hurts again. Now this night, like to the previous, brought us no trouble, and when the day came we had first our breakfast, and then set to upon our collecting of fuel, after which we spent the rest of the day at the senate, having manufactured a sufficiency by the evening the which the boatswain celebrated by a very rousing tot of rum. Then, having made our supper, we lit the fires and had a very comfortable evening, after which, as on the preceding nights, having let the boatswain attend to our wounds, we settled for the night, and on this occasion the boatswain let the man who had lost his fingers, and the one who had been bitten so badly in the arm, take their first turn at the watching, since that night of the attack. Now, when the morning came, we were all of us very eager to come to the flying of the kite. 
for it seemed possible to us that we might effect the rescue of the people in the hulk before evening, and, at the thought of this, we experienced a very pleasurable sense of excitement. Yet, before the bosun would let us touch the kite, he insisted that we should gather our usual supply of fuel, the which order, though full of wisdom, irked us exceedingly, because of our eagerness to set about the rescue. But at last this was accomplished, and we made to get the line ready, testing the knots and seeing that it was all clear for running. Yet, before setting the kite off, the bosun took us down to the further beach to bring up the foot of the royal and to gallant mast, which remained fast to the topmast, and when we had this upon the hilltop, he set its ends upon two rocks, after which he piled a heap of great pieces around them, leaving the middle part clear. Round this he passed the kite line a couple or three times, and then gave the end to Jessup to bend on to the bridle of the kite, and so he had all ready for paying out to the wreck. And now, having nothing to do, we gathered round to watch, and immediately the bosun giving the signal, Jessup cast the kite into the air, and the wind catching it, lifted it strongly and well so that the bosun could scarce pay out fast enough. Now before the kite had been let go, Jessup had bent to the forward end of it a great length of spun yarn, so that those in the wreck could catch it as it trailed over them, and being eager to witness whether they would secure it without trouble, we ran all of us to the edge of the hill to watch. Within five minutes from the time of the loosing of the kite, we saw the people in the ship wave to us to cease veering, and immediately afterwards the kite came swiftly downwards, by which we knew that they had the tripping line, and were hauling upon it, and at that we gave out a great cheer, and afterwards we sat about and smoked, waiting until they had read our instructions, which we had written upon the covering of the kite. Presently, maybe half an hour afterwards, they signaled to us to haul upon our line, which we proceeded to do without delay, and so after a great space we had hauled in all of our rough line, and come upon the end of theirs, which proved to be a fine piece of three-inch hemp, new and very good. Yet we could not conceive that this would stand the stress necessary to lift so great a length clear of the weed as would be needful or ever we could hope to bring the people of the ship over it in safety. And so we waited some little while, and presently they signaled again to us to haul, which we did, and found that they had bent on a much greater rope to the bite of the three-inch hemp, having merely intended the latter for a hauling line, by which to get the heavier rope across the weed to the island. Thus, after a weariful time of pulling, we got the end of the bigger rope up to the hilltop and discovered it to be an extraordinarily sound rope of some four inches diameter and smoothly laid of fine yarns round and very true and well spun. And with this we had every reason to be satisfied. To the end of the big rope they had tied a letter in a bag of oilskin and in it they said some very warm and grateful things to us after which they set out a short code of signals by which we should be able to understand one another on certain general matters, and at the end they asked if they should send us any provision ashore. 
for, as they explained, it would take some little while to get the rope set taut enough for our purpose, and the carrier fixed and in working order. Upon reading this letter, we called out to the bosun that he should ask them if they would send us some soft bread, to which he added thereto a request for lint and bandages and ointment for our hurts. And this he bade me write upon one of the great leaves from off the reeds, and at the end he told me to ask if they desired us to send them any fresh water. And all of this I wrote with a sharpened splinter of a reed, cutting the words into the surface of the leaf. Then, when I had made an end of writing, I gave the leaf to the bosun, and he enclosed it in the oilskin bag, after which he gave the signal for those in the hulk to haul on the smaller line, and this they did. Presently they signed to us to pull in again, the which we did, and so when we had hauled in a great length of their line, we came to the little oilskin bag, in which we found lint and bandages and ointment, and a further letter, which set out that they were baking bread and would send some to us so soon as it was out from the oven. In addition to the matters for the healing of our wounds and the letter, they had included a bundle of paper in loose sheets, some quills and an inkhorn, and at the end of their epistle they begged very earnestly for us to send them some news of the outer world, for they had been shut up in that strange continent of weed for something over seven years. They told us then that there were twelve of them in the hulk, three of them being women, one of whom had been the captain's wife, but he had died soon after the vessel became entangled in the weed, and along with him more than half of the ship's company, having been attacked by giant devil fish as they were attempting to free the vessel from the weed. And afterwards, they who were left had built the superstructure as a protection against the devil fish and the devil men, as they termed them. For until it had been built, there had been no safety about the decks, neither night nor day. To our question as to whether they were in need of water, the people in the ship replied that they had a sufficiency, and further, that they were very well supplied with provisions, for the ship had sailed from London with a general cargo, among which there was a vast quantity of food in various shapes and forms. At this news we were very greatly pleased, seeing that we need have no more anxiety regarding a lack of victuals, and so in the letter which I went into the tent to write, I put down that we were in no great plentitude of provisions, at which hint I guessed they would add somewhat to the bread when it was ready. And after that I wrote down that such chief events as my memory recalled as having occurred in the course of the past seven years, and then a short account of our own adventures up to that time, telling them of the attack which we had suffered from the weed men, and asking such questions as my curiosity and wonder prompted. Now, while I had been writing, sitting in the mouth of the tent, I had observed from time to time how that the bosun was busied with the men in passing the end of the big rope around a mighty boulder, which lay about ten fathoms in from the edge of the cliff which overlooked the hulk. This he did, parceling the rope where the rock was in any way sharp, so as to protect it from being cut, for which purpose he made use of some of the canvas. And by the time that I had the letter completed, 
the rope was made very secure to the great piece of rock, and further, they had put a large piece of chafing gear under that part of the rope where it took the edge of the cliff. Now, having, as I have said, completed the letter, I went out with it to the boson, but before placing it in the oilskin bag, he bade me add a note at the bottom to say that the big rope was all fast and that they could heave on it so soon as it pleased them. And after that, we dispatched the letter by means of the small line, the men in the hulk hauling it off to them so soon as they perceived our signal. By this, it had come well on to the latter part of the afternoon, and the boatswain called us to make some sort of a meal, leaving one man to watch the hulk, perchance they should signal to us. For we had missed our dinner in the excitement of the day's work, and were come now to feel the lack of it. Then, in the midst of it, the man upon the lookout cried that they were signaling to us from the ship, and at that we ran all of us to see what they desired. And so, by the code which we had arranged between us, we found that they waited for us to haul upon the small line. This we did, and made out presently that we were hauling something across the weed of a very fair bulk, at which we warmed to our work, guessing that it was the bread which they had promised us. And so it proved, and done up with great neatness in a long roll of tarpaulin, which had been wrapped around both the loaves and the rope, and lashed very securely at the ends, thus producing a taper shape convenient for passing over the weed without catching. Now, when we came to open this parcel, we discovered that my hint had taken very sound effect, for there were in the parcel, besides the bread loaves, also a boiled ham, a Dutch cheese, two bottles of port well padded from breakage, and four pounds of tobacco in plugs. At this coming of good things, we stood all of us upon the edge of the hill and waved our thanks to those in the ship, they waving back in all good will, and after that we went back to our meal, at which we sampled the new victuals with very lusty appetites. There was in the parcel one other matter, a letter, most neatly indicted, as had been the former epistles, in a feminine handwriting, so that I guessed they had one of the women to be their scribe. This epistle answered some of my queries, and in particular I remember that it informed me as to the probable cause of the strange crying which preceded the attack by the weed men, saying that on each occasion when they in the ship had suffered their attacks, there had been always this same crying, being evidently a summoning call or signal to attack, though how given the writer had not discovered. For the weed devils, this being how they in the ship spoke always of them, made never a sound when attacking, not even when wounded to the death. And indeed I may say here that we never learnt the way in which that lonesome sobbing was produced, nor indeed did they or we, discover more than the merest tithe of the mysteries which that great continent of weeds holds in its silence. Another matter to which I had referred was the consistent blowing of the wind from one quarter, and this, the writer told me, happened for as much as six months in the year, keeping up a very steady strength. A further thing there was which gave me much interest— it was that the ship had not been always where we had discovered her. For at one time they had been so far within the weed 
that they could scarce discern the open sea upon the far horizon, but that, at times, the weed opened in great gulfs that went yawning through the continent for scores of miles, and in this way the shape and coasts of the weed were being constantly altered, these happenings being, for the most part, at the change of the wind. And much more there was that they told us then and afterwards, how that they dried weed for their fuel, and how the rains, which fell with great heaviness at certain periods, supplied them with fresh water, though at times, running short, they had learnt to distill sufficient for their needs until the next rain. Near to the end of the epistle, there came some news of their present actions, and thus we learnt that they in the ship were busy at staying the stump of the mizzenmast, this being the one to which they proposed to attach the big rope, taking it through a great iron-bound snatch block, secured to the head of the stump, and then down to the mizzen capstan, by which, and a strong tackle, they would be able to heave the line so taut as was needful. Now, having finished our meal, the bosun took out the lint, bandages, and ointment which they had sent us from the hulk, and proceeded to dress our hurts, beginning with him who had lost his fingers, which, happily, were making a very healthy heel. Afterwards, we went all of us to the edge of the cliff, and sent back the lookout to fill such crevices in his stomach as remained yet empty. For we had passed him already some sound hunks of the bread and ham and cheese to eat while he kept watch, and so he had suffered no great harm. It may have been nearer an hour after this that the bosun pointed out to me that they in the ship had commenced to heave upon the great rope, and so I perceived and stood watching it. For I knew that the bosun had some anxiety as to whether it would take up sufficiently clear of the weed to allow those in the ship to be hauled along it, free from molestation by the great devil fish. As the evening began to draw on, the bosun bade us go and build our fires about the hilltop, and this we did, after which we returned to learn how the rope was lifting, and now we perceived that it had come clear of the weed, at which we felt mightily rejoiced, and waved encouragement, chance there might be any who watched us from the hulk. Yet, though the rope was up clear of the weed, the bite of it had to rise to a much greater height, or ever it would do for the purpose for which we intended it, and already it suffered a vast strain, as I discovered by placing my hand upon it. For, even to lift the slack of so great a length of line meant the stress of some tons. And later I saw that the bosun was growing anxious, for he went over to the rock around which he had made fast the rope, and examined the knots and those places where he had parceled it, and after that he walked to the place where it went over the edge of the cliff, and here he made a further scrutiny, but came back presently, seeming not dissatisfied. Then, in a while, the darkness came down upon us, and we lighted our fires and prepared for the night, having the watches arranged as on the preceding nights. Chapter 15 Aboard the Hulk Now, when it came to my watch, the which I took in company with the big seamen, the moon had not yet risen, and all the island was vastly dark, save the hilltop, from which the fires blazed in a score of places, and very busy they kept us, supplying them with fuel, 
Then, when maybe the half of our watch was past, the big seaman who had been to feed the fires upon the weed side of the hilltop came across to me and bade me come and put my hand upon the lesser rope, for that he thought they in the ship were anxious to haul it in so that they might send some message across to us. At his words, I asked him very anxiously whether he had perceived them waving a light, the which we had arranged to be our method of signaling in the night, in the event of such being needful. But to this he said that he had seen naught, and by now having come near the edge of the cliff, I could see for myself, and so perceived that there was none signaling to us from the hulk. Yet, to please the fellow, I put my hand upon the line, which we had made fast in the evening to a large piece of rock, and so immediately I discovered that something was pulling upon it, hauling and then slackening, so that it occurred to me that the people in the vessel might be indeed wishful to send us some message, and at that, to make sure, I ran to the nearest fire, and lighting a tuft of weed, waved it thrice, but there came not any answering signal from those in the ship, and at that I went back to feel at the rope, to assure myself that it had not been the pluck of the wind upon it. But I found that it was something very different from the wind, something that plucked with all the sharpness of a hooked fish, only that it had been a mighty great fish to have given such tugs, and so I knew that some vile thing out in the darkness of the weed was fast to the rope, and at this there came the fear that it might break it, and then a second thought that something might be climbing up to us along the rope, and so I bade the big seaman to stand ready with his great cutlass, while I ran and waked the bosun. And this I did, and explained to him how that something meddled with the lesser rope, so that he came immediately to see for himself how this might be. And when he had put his hand upon it, he bade me go and call the rest of the men, and let them stand round by the fires, for that there was something abroad in the night, and we might be in danger of attack. But he and the big seaman stayed by the end of the rope, watching so far as the darkness would allow, and ever and anon feeling the tension upon it. Then suddenly it came to the bosun to look to the second line, and he ran, cursing himself for his thoughtlessness but because of its greater weight and tension, he could not discover for certain whether anything meddled with it or not. Yet he stayed by it, arguing that if aught touched the smaller rope, then might something do likewise with the greater, only that the small line lay along the weed, while the greater one had been some feet above it when the darkness had fallen over us, and so it might be free from any prowling creatures. And thus maybe an hour passed, and we kept watch and tended the fires, going from one to another, and presently coming to that one which was nearest to the bosun, I went over to him, intending to pass a few minutes in talk. But as I drew nigh to him, I chanced to place my hand upon the big rope, and at that I exclaimed in surprise, for it had become much slacker than when last I had felt it in the evening, and I asked the bosun whether he had noticed it, whereat he felt the rope, and was almost more amazed than I had been, for when last he had touched it, it had been taut and humming in the wind. Now upon this discovery, 
he was in much fear that something had bitten through it, and called to the men to come all of them and pull upon the rope, so that he might discover whether it was indeed parted. But when they came and hauled upon it, they were unable to gather in any of it, whereat we felt all of us mightily relieved in our minds, though still unable to come at the cause of its sudden slackness. And so, a while later, there rose the moon, and we were able to examine the island and the water between it and the weed continent, to see whether there was anything stirring. Yet neither in the valley nor on the faces of the cliffs, nor in the open water, could we perceive aught living, and as for anything among the weed, it was small use trying to discover it among all the shaggy blackness. And now, being assured that nothing was coming at us, and that, so far as our eyes could pierce, there climbed nothing upon the ropes, the bosun bade us get turned in, all except those whose time it was to watch. Yet, before I went into the tent, I made a careful examination of the big rope, the which did also the bosun, but could perceive no cause for its slackness. Though this was quite apparent in the moonlight, the rope going down with greater abruptness than it had done in the evening. And so we could but conceive that they and the hulk had slacked it for some reason. And after that we went to the tent and a further spell of sleep. In the early morning we were waked by one of the watchmen, coming into the tent to call the bosun, for it appeared that the hulk had moved in the night, so that its stern was now pointed somewhat towards the island. At this news, we ran all of us from the tent to the edge of the hill, and found it to be indeed as the man had said, and now I understood the reason of that sudden slackening of the rope, for after withstanding the stress upon it for some hours, the vessel had at last yielded and slewed its stern towards us, moving also to some extent bodily in our direction. We discovered that a man in the lookout place in the top of the structure was waving a welcome to us, at which we waved back, and then the bosun bade me haste and write a note to know whether it seemed to them likely that they might be able to heave the ship clear of the weed, and this I did, greatly excited within myself at this new thought, as indeed was the bosun himself and the rest of the men, for could they do this? then how easily solved were every problem of the coming to our own country. But it seemed too good a thing to have come true, and yet I could but hope. And so, when my letter was completed, we put it up in the little oilskin bag and signaled to those in the ship to haul in upon the line. Yet when they went to haul, there came a mighty splather amid the weed and they seemed unable to gather in any of the slack. And then, after a certain pause, I saw the man in the lookout point something, and immediately afterwards there belched out in front of him a little puff of smoke, and presently I caught the report of a musket, so that I knew that he was firing at something in the weed. He fired again, and yet once more, and after that they were able to haul in upon the line, and so I perceived that his fire had proved effectual. Yet we had no knowledge of the thing at which he had fired his weapon. Now presently they signaled to us to draw back the line, the which we could do only with great difficulty, 
and then the man in the top of the superstructure signed to us to vast hauling, which we did, whereupon he began to fire again into the weed, though with what effect we could not perceive. Then, in a while, he signaled to us to haul once more, and now the rope came more easily, yet still with much labor, and a commotion in the weed over which it lay, and, in places, sank. And so at last, as it cleared the weed because of the lift of the cliff, we saw that a great crab had clutched it, and that we hauled it toward us, for the creature had too much obstinacy to let go. Seeing this, and fearing that the great claws of the crab might cut the rope, the bosun caught up one of the men's lances and ran to the cliff edge, calling to us to pull in gently and put no more strain upon the line than need be. And so, hauling with great steadiness, we brought the monster near to the edge of the hill, and there, at a wave from the bosun, stayed our pulling. Then he raised the spear and smote at the creature's eyes, as he had done on a previous occasion, and immediately it loosed its hold and fell with a mighty splash into the water at the foot of the cliff. Then the bosun bade us haul in the rest of the rope until we should come to the packet, and in the meantime he examined the line to see whether it had suffered harm through the mandibles of the crab. Yet beyond just a little chafe, it was quite sound. And so we came to the letter, which I opened and read, finding it to be written in the same feminine hand which had indicted the others. From it, we gathered that the ship had burst through a very thick mass of the weed which had compacted itself about her, and that the second mate, who was the only officer remaining to them, thought there might be good chance to heave the vessel out, though it would have to be done with great slowness, so as to allow the weed to part gradually. Otherwise the ship would but act as a gigantic rake to gather up weed before it, and so form its own barrier to clear water. After this there were kind wishes and hopes that we had spent a good night, the which I took to be prompted by the feminine heart of the writer, and after that I fell to wondering whether it was the captain's wife who acted as scribe. Then I was waked from my pondering by one of the men crying out that they in the ship had commenced to heave again upon the big rope, and for a time I stood and watched it rise slowly as it came to tautness. I had stood there a while watching the rope, when suddenly there came a commotion amid the weed about two-thirds of the way to the ship, and now I saw that the rope had freed itself from the weed, and clutching it were maybe a score of giant crabs. At this sight some of the men cried out their astonishment, and then we saw that there had come a number of men into the lookout place in the top of the superstructure, and immediately they opened very brisk fire upon the creatures, and so by ones and twos they fell back into the weed, and after that the men in the hulk resumed their heaving. In a while they had the rope some feet clear of the surface. Having tautened the rope so much as they thought proper, they left it to have its due effect upon the ship, and proceeded to attach a great block to it. Then they signaled to us to slack away on the little rope until they had the middle part of it, and this they hitched around the neck of the block, and to the eye in the strop of the block they attached a bosun's chair, 
and so they had ready a carrier, and by this means we were able to haul stuff to and from the hulk without having to drag it across the surface of the weed, being indeed the fashion in which we had intended to haul ashore the people in the ship. But now we had the bigger project of salvaging the ship herself, and further, the big rope, which acted as support for the carrier, was not yet of a sufficient height above the weed continent for it to be safe to attempt to bring any ashore by such means. And now that we had hopes of saving the ship, we did not intend to risk parting the big rope by trying to attain such a degree of tautness as would have been necessary at this time to have raised its bite to the desired height. Now, presently the bosun called out to one of the men to make breakfast, and when it was ready we came to it, leaving the man with the wounded arm to keep watch. Then, when we had made an end, he sent him that had lost his fingers to keep a lookout while the other came to the fire and ate his breakfast. In the meanwhile, the bosun took us down to collect weed and reeds for the night, and so we spent the greater part of the morning. When we had made an end of this, we returned to the top of the hill to discover how matters were going forward. We found from the one at the lookout that they in the hulk had been obliged to heave twice upon the big rope to keep it off the weed, and by this we knew that the ship was indeed making a slow sternway towards the island, slipping steadily through the weed, and as we looked at her it seemed almost that we could perceive that she was nearer, but this was no more than imagination, for at most she could not have moved more than some odd fathoms. Still, it cheered us greatly, so that we waved our congratulations to the man who stood in the lookout in the superstructure, and he waved back. Later we made dinner, and afterwards had a very comfortable smoke, and then the bosun attended to our various hurts. And so through the afternoon we sat about upon the crest of the hill, overlooking the hulk. And thrice had they in the ship to heave upon the big rope, and by evening they had made near thirty fathoms toward the island the which they told us in reply to a query which the bosun desired me to send them, several messages having passed between us in the course of the afternoon, so that we had the carrier upon our side. Further than this, they explained that they would tend the rope during the night so that the strain would be kept up, and more, this would keep the ropes off the weed. And so, the night coming down upon us, the bosun bade us light the fires about the top of the hill, the same having been laid earlier in the day, and thus, our supper having been dispatched, we prepared for the night. And all through it there burned lights aboard the hulk, the which proved very companionable to us in our times of watching. At last came the morning, the darkness having passed without event. And now, to our huge pleasure, we discovered that the ship had made great progress in the night, being now so much nearer that none could suppose it a matter of imagination, for she must have moved nigh sixty fathoms nearer to the island, so that now we seemed able almost to recognize the face of the man in the lookout. And many things about the hulk we saw with greater clearness, so that we scanned her with a fresh interest. Then the man in the lookout waved a morning greeting to us, the which we returned very heartily, and even as we did so there came a second figure beside the man, and waved some white matter 
perchance a handkerchief, which is like enough, seeing that it was a woman. And at that we took off our head coverings, all of us, and shook them at her. And after this we went to our breakfast, having finished which, the bosun dressed our wounds, and then setting the man who had lost his fingers to watch, he took the rest of us, excepting him that was bitten in the arm, down to collect fuel, and so the time passed until near dinner. When we returned to the hilltop, the man upon the lookout told us that they in the ship had heaved not less than four separate times upon the big rope, the which indeed they were doing at that present minute, and it was very plain to see that the ship had come nearer even during the short space of the morning. Now, when they had made an end of tautening the rope, I perceived that it was at last well clear of the weed through all its length, being at its lowest part nigh twenty feet above the surface, and at that a sudden thought came to me, which sent me hastily to the bosun. For it had occurred to me that there existed no reason why we should not pay a visit to those aboard the hulk. But when I put the matter to him, he shook his head, and for a while stood out against my desire. But presently, having examined the rope, and considering that I was the lightest of any in the island, he consented, and at that I ran to the carrier which had been hauled across to our side, and got me into the chair. Now the men, so soon as they perceived my intention, applauded me very heartily, desiring to follow. But the boatswain bade them be silent, and after that he lashed me into the chair with his own hands, and then signaling to those in the ship to haul upon the small rope, he, in the meanwhile, checking my descent towards the weeds by means of our end of the hauling line. And so, presently, I had come to the lowest part, where the bite of the rope dipped downward in a bow towards the weed, and rose again to the mizzenmast of the hulk. Here I looked down with somewhat fearful eyes, for my weight on the rope made it sag somewhat lower than seemed to me comfortable, and I had a very lively recollection of some of the horrors which that quiet surface hid. Yet I was not long in this place, for they in the ship perceiving how the rope let me nearer to the weed than was safe, pulled very heartily upon the hauling line, and so I came quickly to the hulk. Now, as I drew nigh to the ship, the men crowded upon a little platform which they had built in the superstructure somewhat below the broken head of the mizzen, and here they received me with loud cheers and very open arms, and were so eager to get me out of the bosun's chair that they cut the lashings, being too impatient to cast them loose. Then they led me down to the deck, and here, before I had knowledge of aught else, a very buxom woman took me into her arms, kissing me right heartily, at which I was greatly taken aback. But the men about me did not but laugh, and so in a minute she loosed me, and there I stood, not knowing whether to feel like a fool or a hero, but inclining rather to the latter. Then at this minute there came a second woman, who bowed to me in a manner most formal, so that we might have been met in some fashionable gathering, rather than in a castaway hulk in the lonesomeness and terror of that weed-choked sea. At her coming all the mirth of the men died out of them, and they became very sober, 
while the buxom woman went backward for a piece and seemed somewhat abashed. Now, at all this, I was greatly puzzled and looked from one to another to learn what it might mean. But in the same moment, the woman bowed again and said something in a low voice touching the weather, and after that she raised her glance to my face so that I saw her eyes, and they were so strange and full of melancholy that I knew on the instant why she spoke and acted in so unmeaning a way, for the poor creature was out of her mind, and when I learnt afterwards that she was the captain's wife and had seen him die in the arms of a mighty devilfish, I grew to understand how she had come to such a pass. Now, for a minute after I had discovered the woman's madness, I was so taken aback as to be unable to answer her remark. But for this there appeared no necessity, for she turned away and went aft towards the saloon stairway, which stood open, and here she was met by a maid very bonny and fair, who led her tenderly down from my sight. Yet in a minute this same maid appeared and ran along the decks to me, and caught my two hands and shook them, and looked up at me with such roguish, playful eyes that she warmed my heart, which had been strangely chilled by the greeting of the poor madwoman. And she said many hearty things regarding my courage, to which I knew in my heart I had no claim, but I let her run on, and so presently, coming more to possession of herself, she discovered that she was still holding my hands, the which indeed I had been conscious of the while with a very great pleasure. But at her discovery she dropped them with haste, and stood back from me a space, and so there came a little coolness into her talk. Yet this lasted not long, for we were both of us young, and I think even thus early we attracted one the other, though apart from this there was so much that we desired each to learn that we could not but talk freely, asking question after question and giving answer for answer. And thus a time passed in which the men left us alone and went presently to the capstan about which they had taken the big rope. And at this they toiled a while, for already the ship had moved sufficiently to let the line fall slack. Presently the maid whom I had learnt was niece to the captain's wife and named Mary Madison, proposed to take me the round of the ship, to which proposal I agreed very willingly. But first I stopped to examine the mizzen stump and the manner in which the people of the ship had stayed it, the which they had done very cunningly, and I noted how that they had removed some of the superstructure from about the head of the mast so as to allow passage for the rope without putting a strain upon the superstructure itself. Then, when I had made an end upon the poop, she led me down onto the main deck, and here I was very greatly impressed by the prodigious size of the structure which they had built around the hulk, and the skill with which it had been carried out, the supports crossing from side to side and to the decks in a manner calculated to give great solidity to that which they upheld. Yet I was very greatly puzzled to know where they had gotten a sufficiency of timber to make so large a matter, but upon this point she satisfied me by explaining that they had taken up the tween decks and used all such bulkheads as they could spare, and further that there had been a good deal among the dunnage which had proved usable. And so we came at last to the galley, and here I discovered the buxom woman to be installed as cook 
and there were in with her a couple of fine children, one of whom I guessed to be a boy of maybe some five years, and the second a girl, scarce able to do more than toddle. At this I turned and asked Mistress Madison whether these were her cousins, but in the next moment I remembered that they could not be, for, as I knew, the captain had been dead some seven years. Yet it was the woman in the galley who answered my question, for she turned, and with something of a red face, informed me that they were hers, at which I felt some surprise, but supposed that she had taken passage in the ship with her husband. Yet in this also I was not correct, for she proceeded to explain that, thinking they were cut off from the world for the rest of this life, and falling very fond of the carpenter, they had made it up together to make a sort of marriage, and had gotten the second mate to read the service over them. She told me then how that she had taken passage with her mistress, the captain's wife, to help her with her niece, who had been but a child when the ship sailed, for she had been very attached to them both, and they to her. And so she came to an end of her story, expressing a hope that she had done no wrong by her marriage, as none had been intended. And to this I made answer, assuring her that no decent-minded man could think the worse of her, but that I, for my part, thought rather the better, seeing that I liked the pluck which she had shown. At that she cast down the soup ladle, which she had in her fist, and came towards me, wiping her hands. But I gave back, for I shamed to be hugged again, and before Mistress Mary Madison, and at that she came to a stop and laughed very heartily, but all the same called down a very warm blessing upon my head, for which I had no cause to feel the worse, and so I passed on with the captain's niece. Presently, having made the round of the hulk, we came aft again to the poop, and discovered that they were heaving once more upon the big rope, the which was very heartening, proving, as it did, that the ship was still a move. And so, a little later, the girl left me, having to attend to her aunt. Now, while she was gone, the men came all about me, desiring news of the world beyond the weed continent. And so for the next hour I was kept very busy answering their questions. Then the second mate called out to them to take another heave upon the rope, and at that they turned to the capstan, and I with them, and so we hove it taut again, after which they got about me once more, questioning, for so much seemed to have happened in the seven years in which they had been imprisoned. Then, after a while, I turned to and questioned them on such points as I had neglected to ask Mistress Madison, and they discovered to me their terror and sickness of the weed continent, its desolation and horror, and the dread which had beset them at the thought that they should all of them come to their ends without sight of their homes and countrymen. About this time I became conscious that I had grown very empty, for I had come off to the hulk before we made our dinner, and had been in such interest since that the thought of food had escaped me, for I had seen none eating in the hulk, they without doubt having dined earlier than my coming. But now, being made aware of my state by the grumbling of my stomach, I inquired whether there was any food to be had at such a time, and, at that, one of the men ran to tell the woman in the galley that I had missed my dinner, at which she made such ado 
and set to and prepared me a very good meal, which she carried aft and set out for me in the saloon, and after that she sent me down to it. When I had come near to being comfortable, there chanced a lightsome step upon the floor behind me, and turning, I discovered that Mistress Madison was surveying me with a roguish and somewhat amused air. I got hastily to my feet, but she bade me sit down, and therewith she took a seat opposite, and so bantered me with a gentle playfulness that was not displeasing to me, and at which I played so good a second as I had ability. Later, I fell to questioning her, and among other matters, discovered that it was she who acted as scribe for the people in the hulk, at which I told her that I had done likewise for those on the island. After that, our talk became somewhat personal, and I learned that she was near on to nineteen years of age, whereat I told her that I had passed my twenty-third. We chatted on until presently, it occurred to me that I had better be preparing to return to the island, and I rose to my feet with this intention. Yet, feeling that I had been very much happier to have stayed, the which I thought for a moment had not been displeasing to her, and this I imagined, noting somewhat in her eyes when I had made mention that I must be gone, yet it may be also that I flattered myself. Now, when I came out on deck, they were busied again in heaving taut the rope, and until they had made an end, Mistress Madison and I filled the time with such chatter as is wholesome between a man and maid who have not long met, yet find one another pleasing company. Then, when at last the rope was taut, I went up to the mizzen staging and climbed into the chair, after which some of the men lashed me in very securely. Yet, when they gave the signal to haul me to the island, there came for a while no response, and then signs that we could not understand, but no movement to haul me across the weed. At that, they unlashed me from the chair, bidding me get out, while they sent a message to discover what might be wrong. And this they did, and presently there came back word that the big rope had stranded upon the edge of the cliff, and that they must slacken it somewhat at once, the which they did, with many expressions of dismay. And so maybe an hour passed, during which we watched the men working at the rope, just where it came down over the edge of the hill, and Mistress Madison stood with us and watched. For it was very terrible, this sudden thought of failure, though it were but temporary, when they were so near to success. Yet, at last, there came a signal from the island for us to loose the hauling line, the which we did, allowing them to haul across the carrier. And so, in a little while, they signaled back to us to pull in, which, having done, we found a letter in the bag lashed to the carrier, in which the bosun made it plain that he had strengthened the rope and placed fresh chafing gear about it, so that he thought it would be safe as ever to heave upon, but to put it to a less strain. Yet he refused to allow me to venture across upon it, saying that I must stay in the ship until we were clear of the weed, for if the rope had stranded in one place, then had it been so cruelly tested that there might be some other points at which it was ready to give and this final note of the bosun's made us all very serious. For, indeed, it seemed possible that it was as he suggested. 
Yet they reassured themselves by pointing out that, like enough, it had been the chafe upon the cliff edge which had frayed the strand, so that it had been weakened before it parted. But I, remembering the chafing gear which the boson had put about it in the first instance, felt not so sure, yet I would not add to their anxieties. And thus it came about that I was compelled to spend the night in the hulk. But as I followed Mistress Madison into the big saloon, I felt no regret and had near forgotten already my anxiety regarding the rope. And out on deck there sounded most cheerily the clack of the capstan. Chapter 16 Freed Now, when Mistress Madison had seated herself, she invited me to do likewise, after which we fell into talk, first touching upon the matter of the stranding of the rope, about which I hastened to assure her, and later to other things, and so as is natural enough with a man and maid to ourselves, and here we were very content to let it remain. Presently the second mate came in with a note from the boson, which he laid upon the table for the girl to read, the which she beckoned me to do also, and so I discovered that it was a suggestion, written very rudely and ill-spelt, that they should send us a quantity of reeds from the island, with which we might be able to ease the weed somewhat from around the stern of the hulk, and thus aiding her progress. To this the second mate desired the girl to write a reply, saying that we should be very happy for the reeds, and would endeavor to act upon his hint, and this Mistress Madison did, after which she passed the letter to me, perchance I desired to send any message, yet I had not that I wished to say, and so handed it back with a word of thanks, and at once she gave it to the second mate, who went forthwith and dispatched it. Later, the stout woman from the galley came aft to set out the table, which occupied the center of the saloon, and while she was at this, she asked for information on many things, being very free and unaffected in her speech, and seeming with less of deference to my companion than a certain motherliness for it was very plain that she loved Mistress Madison, and in this my heart did not blame her. Further, it was plain to me that the girl had a very warm affection for her old nurse, which was but natural, seeing that the old woman had cared for her through all the past years, besides being companion to her, and a good and cheerful one, as I could guess. Now a while passed in answering the buxom woman's questions, and odd times, such occasional ones as were slipped in by Mistress Madison. And then, suddenly, there came the clatter of men's feet overhead, and later the thud of something being cast down upon the deck, and so we knew that the reeds had come. At that, Mistress Madison cried out that we should go and watch the men try them upon the weed, for that if they proved of use in easing that which lay in our path, then we should come the more speedily to the clear water, and this without the need of putting so great a strain upon the hawser, as had been the case hitherto. When we came to the poop deck, we found the men removing a portion of the superstructure over the stern, and after that they took some of the stronger reeds and proceeded to work at the weed that stretched away in a line with our taffrail, yet that they had anticipated danger, I perceived 
for there stood by them two of the men and the second mate, all armed with muskets, and these three kept a very strict watch upon the weed, knowing through much experience of its terrors how that there might be a need for their weapons at any moment. And so a while passed, and it was plain that the men's work upon the weed was having effect, for the rope grew slack visibly, and those at the capstan had all that they could do, taking fleet and fleet with the tackle, to keep it anywhere near to tautness. And so, perceiving that they were kept so hard at it, I ran to give a hand, the which did Mistress Madison, pushing upon the capstan bars right merrily and with hardiness. And thus a while passed, and the evening began to calm down upon the lonesomeness of the weed continent. Then there appeared the buxom woman, and bade us come to our suppers, and her manner of addressing the two of us was the manner of one who might have mothered us. But Mistress Madison cried out to her to wait, that we had found work to do, and at that the big woman laughed and came towards us threateningly, as though intending to remove us hence by force. At this moment there came a sudden interruption which checked our merriment, for abruptly there sounded the report of a musket in the stern, then shouts, and the noise of the two other weapons, seeming like thunder, being pent by the overarching superstructure. Directly the men about the taffrail gave back, running here and there, and so I saw that great arms had come all about the opening which they had made in the superstructure, and two of these flickered inboard, searching hither and thither. But the stout woman took a man near to her and thrust him out of danger, and after that she caught Mistress Madison up in her big arms and ran down onto the main deck with her, and all this before I had come to a full knowledge of our danger. By now, though, I perceived that I should do well to get further back from the stern, the which I did with haste, and coming to a safe position, I stood and stared at the huge creature, its great arms, vague in the growing dusk, writhing about in vain search for a victim. Then returned the second mate, having been four more weapons, and now I observed that he armed all the men and had brought up a spare musket for my use, and so we commenced all of us to fire at the monster whereat it began to lash about most furiously, and so after some minutes it slipped away from the opening and slid down into the weed. Upon that several of the men rushed to replace those parts of the superstructure which had been removed, and I with them, yet there were sufficient for the job so that I had no need to do much. Thus, before they had made up the opening, I had been given chance to look out upon the weed, and so discovered that all the surface which lay between our stern and the island was moving in vast ripples, as though mighty fish were swimming beneath it. And then, just before the men put back the last of the great panels, I saw the weed all tossed up like to a vast pot a-boil, and then a vague glimpse of thousands of monstrous arms that filled the air and came towards the ship. But then the men had the panel back in its place, and were hasting to drive the supporting struts into their positions. When this was done, we stood a while and listened, but there came no sound above that of the wail of the wind across the extent of the weed continent. And at that, I turned to the men, asking how it was that I could hear no sounds of the creatures attacking us. 
and so they took me up into the lookout place, and from there I stared down at the weed. But it was without movement, save for the stirring of the wind, and there was nowhere any sign of the devil fish. Then, seeing me amazed, they told me how that anything which moved the weed seemed to draw them from all parts, but that they seldom touched the hulk unless there was something visible to them which had movement. Yet, as they went on to explain, there would be hundreds and hundreds of them lying all about the ship, hiding in the weed. But that, if we took care not to show ourselves within their reach, they would have gone most of them by the morning. And this the men told me in a very matter-of-fact way, for they had become inured to such happenings. Presently I heard Mistress Madison calling to me by name, and so descended out of the growing darkness to the interior of the superstructure, and here they had lit a number of rude lamps, the oil for which, as I learned later, they obtained from a certain fish which haunted the sea beneath the weed in very large schools, and took near any sort of bait with great readiness. And so, when I had climbed down into the light, I found the girl waiting for me to come to supper, for which I discovered myself to be in a mightily agreeable humor. Presently, having made an end of eating, she leaned back in her seat, and commenced once more to bait me in her playful manner, the which appeared to afford her much pleasure, and in which I joined with no less, and so we fell presently to more earnest talk and in this wise we passed a great space of the evening. Then there came to her a sudden idea, and what must she do but propose that we should climb to the lookout, and to this I agreed with a very happy willingness, and to the lookout we went. Now when we had come there, I perceived her reason for this idea, for away in the night, astern the hulk, there blazed halfway between the heaven and the sea a mighty glow, and suddenly as I stared, being dumb with admiration and surprise, I knew that it was the blaze of our fires upon the crown of the bigger hill. For all the hill being in shadow, and hidden by darkness, there showed only the glow of the fires, hung as they were in the void, and a very striking and beautiful spectacle it was. Then as I watched, there came abruptly a figure into view upon the edge of the glow, showing black and minute, and this I knew to be one of the men come to the edge of the hill to take a look at the ship, or test the strain of the hawser. Now upon my expressing admiration of the sight to Mistress Madison, she seemed greatly pleased, and told me that she had been up many times in the darkness to view it. And after that we went down again, into the interior of the superstructure, and here the men were taking a further heave upon the big rope, before settling the watches for the night, the which they managed by having one man at a time to keep awake and call the rest whenever the hawser grew slack. Later, Mistress Madison showed me where I was to sleep, and so, having bid one another a very warm good night, we parted, she going to see that her aunt was comfortable and I out onto the main deck to have a chat with the man on watch. In this way, I passed the time until midnight, and in that while we had been forced to call the men thrice to heave upon the hawser, so quickly had the ship begun to make way through the weed. 
Then, having grown sleepy, I said good night and went to my berth, and so had my first sleep upon a mattress for some weeks. When the morning was come, I waked, hearing Mistress Madison calling upon me from the other side of my door, and rating me very saucily for a lie-abed, and at that I made good speed at dressing and came quickly into the saloon, where she already had a breakfast waiting, which made me glad I had waked. But first, before she would do aught else, she had me out to the lookout place, running up before me most merrily and singing in the fullness of her glee. And so, when I had come to the top of the superstructure, I perceived that she had very good reason for so much merriment, and the sight which came to my eyes gladdened me most mightily, yet at the same time filling me with a great amazement. For in the course of that one night, we had made near unto two hundred fathoms across the weed, being now, with what we had made previously, no more than some thirty fathoms in from the edge of the weed. And there stood Mistress Madison beside me, doing somewhat of a dainty step dance upon the flooring of the lookout, and singing a quaint old lilt that I had not heard in near a dozen years. And this little thing, I think, brought back more clearly to me than aught else how that this winsome maid had been lost to the world for so many years, having been scarce of the age of twelve when the ship had been lost in the weed continent. Then, as I turned to make some remark, being filled with many feelings, there came a hail from far above in the air, as it might be, and looking up, I discovered the man upon the hill to be standing along the edge and waving to us. And now I perceived how that the hill towered a very great way above us, seeming to overhang the hulk, though we were yet some seventy fathoms distant from the sheer sweep of its nearer precipice. And so, having waved back our greeting, we made down to breakfast, and having come to the saloon, set to upon the good victuals, and did very sound justice thereto. Having made an end of eating, and hearing the clack of the capstan pauls, we hurried out on deck, and put our hands upon the bars, intending to join in that last heave which should bring the ship free out of her long captivity, and so for a time we moved round about the capstan, and I glanced at the girl beside me, for she had become very solemn, and indeed it was a strange and solemn time for her, for she, who had dreamed of the world as her childish eyes had seen it, was now, after many hopeless years, to go forth once more to it, to live in it, and to learn how much had been dreams, and how much real. And with all these thoughts I credited her, for they seemed such as would have come to me at such a time, and presently I made some blundering effort to show to her that I had understanding of the tumult which possessed her, and at that she smiled up at me with a sudden flash of sadness and merriment, and our glances met, and I saw something in hers which was but newborn, and though I was but a young man, my heart interpreted it for me, and I was all hot suddenly with pain and sweet delight of this new thing, for I had not dared to think upon that which already my heart had made bold to whisper to me, so that even thus soon I was miserable out of her presence. Then she looked downward at her hands upon the bar, 
and in that same instant there came a loud, abrupt cry from the second mate to vast heaving, and at that all the men pulled out their bars and cast them upon the deck and ran shouting to the ladder that led to the lookout, and we followed and came to the top eventually and discovering that at last the ship was clear of the weed and floating in the open water between it and the island. At the discovery that the hulk was free, the men commenced to cheer and shout in a very wild fashion, as indeed is no cause for wonder, and we cheered with them. Then, suddenly in the midst of our shouting, Mistress Madison plucked me by the sleeve and pointed to the end of the island where the foot of the bigger hill jutted out into a great spur, and now I perceived a boat coming round into view and in another moment I saw that the bosun stood in the stern, steering. Thus I knew that he must have finished repairing her while I had been on the hulk. By this the men about us had discovered the nearness of the boat, and commenced shouting afresh, and they ran down and to the bows of the vessel, and got ready a rope to cast. Now when the boat came near, the men in her scanned us very curiously, but the bosun took off his headgear with a clumsy grace that well became him, at which Mistress Madison smiled very kindly upon him, and after that she told me with great frankness that he pleased her, and more that she had never seen so great a man, which was not strange, seeing that she had seen but few since she had come to years when men become of interest to a maid. After saluting us, the bosun called out to the second mate that he would tow us round to the far side of the island, and to this the officer agreed, being, I surmised, by no means sorry to put some solid matter between himself and the desolation of the great weed continent. And so, having loosed the hawser, which fell from the hilltop with a prodigious splash, we had the boat head towing. In this wise we opened out, presently the end of the hill, but feeling now the force of the breeze, we bent a kedge to the hawser, and the bosun carrying it seawards, we warped ourselves to windward of the island, and here in forty fathoms we vast heaving and rode to the kedge. When this was accomplished, they called to our men to come aboard, and this they did, and spent all of that day in talk and eating, for those in the ship could scarce make enough of our fellows. And then, when it had come to night, they replaced that part of the superstructure which they had removed from about the head of the mizzen stump. And so, all being secure, each one turned in and had a full night's rest, of the which, indeed, many of them stood in sore need. The following morning, the second mate had a consultation with the bosun, after which he gave the order to commence upon the removal of the great superstructure and to this each one of us set himself with vigor. Yet it was a work requiring some time, and near five days had passed before we had the ship stripped clear. When this had been accomplished, there came a busy time of routing out various matters of which we should have need in jury-rigging her, for they had been so long in disuse that none remembered where to look for them. At this a day and a half was spent, and after that we set to about fitting her with such jury masts as we could manage from our material. Now, after the ship had been dismasted, all those seven years gone, the crew had been able to save many of her spars, 
these having remained attached to her, through their inability to cut away all of the gear. And though this had put them in sore peril at that time, of being sent to the bottom with a hole in their side, yet now had they every reason to be thankful. For by this accident, we now had a foreyard, a topsail yard, a main-to-gallant yard, and the fore-topmast. They had saved more than these, but had made use of the smaller spars to shore up the superstructure, sawing them into lengths for that purpose. Apart from such spars as they had managed to secure, they had a spare topmast lashed along under the larboard bulwarks, and a spare to gallant and royal mast lying along the starboard side. Now, the second mate and the bosun set the carpenter to work upon the spare topmast, bidding him make for it some trestle trees and bolsters, upon which to lay the eyes of the rigging, but they did not trouble him to shape it. Further, they ordered the same to be fitted to the fore-topmast, and the spare to gallant and royal mast. And in the meanwhile, the rigging was prepared, and when this was finished, they made ready the shears to hoist the spare topmast, intending this to take the place of the main lower mast. Then, when the carpenter had carried out their orders, he was set to make three partners with a step cut in each, these being intended to take the heels of the three masts, and when these were completed, they bolted them securely to the decks at the forepart of each one of the stumps of the lower three masts. And so, having all ready, we hove the main mast into position, after which we proceeded to rig it. Now, when we had made an end of this, we set two upon the foremast, using for this the fore topmast, which they had saved, and after that we hove the mizzen mast into place, having for this the spare to gallant and royal mast. Now, the manner in which we secured the masts, before ever we came to the rigging of them, was by lashing them to the stumps of the lower masts, and after we had lashed them, we drove dunnage and wedges between the masts and the lashings, thus making them very secure. And so, when we had set up the rigging, we had confidence that they would stand all such sail as we should be able to set upon them. Yet further than this, the bosun bade the carpenter make wooden caps of six-inch oak, these caps to fit over the squared heads of the lower mast stumps, and having a hole, each of them, to embrace the jury mast. And by making these caps in two halves, they were able to bolt them on after the masts had been hove into position. And so, having gotten in our three jury lower masts, we hoisted up the foreyard to the main to act as our main yard, and did likewise with the top sail yard to the fore, and after that, we sent up the tagallant yard to the mizzen. Thus we had her sparred, all but a bowsprit and jivum. Yet this we managed by making a stumpy spike bowsprit from one of the smaller spars which they had used to shore up the superstructure. And because we feared that it lacked strength to bear the strain of our fore and aft stays, we took down two housers from the fore, passing them in through the house holes, and setting them up there. And so we had her rigged, and after that we bent such sail as our gear abled us to carry, and in this wise had the hulk ready for sea. Now the time it took us to rig the ship and fit her out was seven weeks, saving one day, and in all this time we suffered no molestation from any of the strange habitants of the weed continent, 
though this may have been because we kept fires or dried weed going all night about the decks, these fires being lit on big flat pieces of rock which we had gotten from the island. Yet for all that we had not been troubled, we had more than once discovered strange things in the water swimming near to the vessel, but a flare of weed hung over the side on the end of a reed had sufficed always to scare away such unholy visitants. And so at last we came to the day on which we were in so good a condition that the boatswain and the second mate considered the ship to be in a fit state to put to sea, the carpenter having gone over so much of her hull as he could get at and found her everywhere very sound, though her lower parts were hideously overgrown with weed, barnacles, and other matters. Yet this we could not help, and it was not wise to attempt to scrape her having consideration to the creatures which we knew to abound in those waters. Now, in those seven weeks, Mistress Madison and I had come very close to one another, so that I had ceased to call her by any name save Mary, unless it were a dearer one than that, though this would be one of my own invention and would leave my heart too naked did I put it down in writing here. Of our love one for the other, I think yet, and ponder how that mighty man, the boatswain, came so quickly to a knowledge of the state of our hearts. For he gave me a very sly hint one day that he had a sound idea of the way in which the wind blew, and yet, though he said it with a half-jest, methought there was something wistful in his voice as he spoke, and at that I just clapped my hand in his, and he gave it a very huge grip. And after that he ceased from the subject. Chapter 17. How We Came to Our Own Country Now when the day came on which we made to leave the nearness of the island and the waters of that strange sea, there was great lightness of heart among us, and we went very merrily about such tasks as were needful. And so, in a little, we had the kedge tripped and had cast the ship's head to starboard, and presently had her braced up upon the larboard tack, the which we managed very well, though our gear worked heavily, as might be expected. And after that we had gotten under way, we went to the lee side to witness the last of that lonesome island, and with us came the men of the ship, and so for a space there was silence among us, for they were very quiet, looking astern and saying naught but we had sympathy with them, knowing somewhat of those past years. And now the boatswain came to the break of the poop deck, and called down to the men to muster aft, the which they did, and I with them, for I had come to regard them as my very good comrades. And rum was served out to each of them, and to me, along with the rest, and it was Mistress Madison herself who dipped it out to us from the wooden bucket though it was the buxom woman who had brought it up from the lazarette. After the rum, the boatswain bade the crew to clear up the gear about the decks, and get matters secured, and at that I turned to go with the men, having become so used to work with them. But he called me to come up to him upon the poop deck, the which I did, and there he spoke respectfully, remonstrating with me and reminding me that now there was need no longer for me to toil for that I was come back to my old position of passenger, 
such as I had been in the Glen Carrig, ere she foundered. But to this talk of his I made reply that I had as good a right to work my passage home as any other among us. For though I had paid for a passage in the Glen Carrig, I had done no such thing regarding the seabird, this being the name of our present hulk, and to this the boatswain said little, but I perceived that he liked my spirit, and so from thence until we reached the port of London I took my turn and part in all seafaring matters, having become by this time quite proficient in the calling. Yet in one matter I availed myself of my former position, for I chose to live aft, and by this was able to see much of my sweetheart, Mistress Madison. Now after dinner upon the day on which we left the island, the boatswain and the second mate picked the watches, and thus I found myself chosen to be in the boatswain's, at which I was mightily pleased. And when the watches had been picked, they had all hands too about the ship, the which, to the pleasure of all, she accomplished. For under such gear and with so much growth upon her bottom, they had feared that we should have to veer, and by this we should have lost much distance to leeward, whereas we desired to edge so much to windward as we could, being anxious to put space between us and the weed continent. And twice more that day we put the ship about, though the second time it was to avoid a great bank of weed that lay floating athwart our bows. For all the sea to windward of the island, so far as we had been able to see from the top of the higher hill, was studded with floating masses of the weed, like unto thousands of islets, and in places like to far-spreading reefs. And because of these, the sea all about the island remained very quiet and unbroken, so that there was never any surf, nor scarce a broken wave upon its shore, and this for all that the wind had been fresh for many days. When the evening came, we were again upon the larboard tack, making perhaps some four knots in the hour, though had we been in proper rig and with a clean bottom, we had been making eight or nine with so good a breeze and so calm a sea. Yet so far our progress had been very reasonable, for the island lay maybe some five miles to leeward and about fifteen astern, and so we prepared for the night. Yet a little before dark, we discovered that the weed continent trended out towards us, so that we should pass it maybe at a distance of something like half a mile, and at that there was talk between the second mate and the boatswain as to whether it was better to put the ship about and gain a greater sea-room before attempting to pass this promontory of weed. But at last they decided that we had naught to fear, for we had fair way through the water, and further it did not seem reasonable to suppose that we should have aught to fear from the inhabitants of the weed continent at so great a distance as the half of a mile. And so we stood on, for once past the point, there was much likelihood of the weed trending away to the eastward, and if this were so, we could square in immediately and get the wind upon our quarter, and so make better way. Now it was the boatswain's watch from eight in the evening until midnight, and I, with another man, had the lookout until four bells. Thus it chanced, coming abreast of the point during our time of watching, we peered very earnestly to leeward 
for the night was dark, having no moon until nearer the morning, and we were full of unease in that we had come so near again to the desolation of that strange place. Then, suddenly, the man with me clutched my shoulder and pointed into the darkness upon our bow, and thus I discovered that we had come nearer to the weed than the boatswain and the second mate had intended, they, without doubt, having miscalculated our leeway. At this, I turned and sang out to the boatswain that we were near to running upon the weed, and in the same moment he shouted to the helmsman to luff, and directly afterwards our starboard side was brushing against the great outlying tufts of the point, and so for a breathless minute we waited. Yet the ship drew clear, and so into the open water beyond the point. But I had seen something as we scraped against the weed, a sudden glimpse of white gliding among the growth. And then I saw others, and in a moment I was down on the main deck and running aft to the bosun. Yet midway along the deck a horrid shape came above the starboard rail, and I gave out a loud cry of warning. Then I had a capstan bar from the rack near, and smote with it at the thing, crying all the while for help, and at my blow the thing went from my sight. And then the boatswain was with me, and some of the men. Now the boatswain had seen my stroke, and so sprang upon the tagallant rail, and peered over, but gave back on the instant, shouting to me to run and call the other watch, for that the sea was full of the monsters swimming off to the ship and at that I was away at a run, and when I had waked the men I raced aft to the cabin and did likewise with the second mate, and so returned in a minute bearing the boatswain's cutlass, my own cut and thrust, and the lantern that hung always in the saloon. Now when I had gotten back I found all things in a mighty scurry, men running about in their shirts and drawers, some in the galley bringing fire from the stove, others lighting a fire of dry weed to leeward of the galley, and along the starboard rail there was already a fierce fight, the men using capstan bars, even as I had done. Then I thrust the boatswain's cutlass into his hand, and at that he gave me a great shout, part of joy and part of approbation, and after that he snatched the lantern from me, and had run to the larboard side of the deck, before I was well aware that he had even taken the light. But now I followed him, and happy it was for all of us in the ship that he had thought to go at that moment, for the light of the lantern showed me the vile faces of three of the weed men climbing over the larboard rail. Yet the boatswain had cleft them, or ever I could come near. But in a moment I was full busy, for there came nigh a dozen heads above the rail a little aft of where I was, and at that I ran at them and did good execution, but some had been aboard if the boatswain had not come to my help. And now the decks were full of light, several fires having been lit, and the second mate having brought out fresh lanterns. And now the men had gotten their cutlasses, the which were more handy than the capstan bars. So the fight went forward, some having come over to our side to help us, and a very wild sight it must have seemed to any onlooker for all about the decks burned the fires and the lanterns, and along the rails ran men, smiting at hideous faces that rose in dozens into the wild glare of our fighting lights. 
and everywhere drifted the stench of the brutes. And upon the poop deck, the fight was as brisk as elsewhere, and here, having been drawn by a cry for help, I discovered the buxom woman smiting with a gory meat axe at a vile thing which had gotten a clump of its tentacles upon her dress. But she had dispatched it, or ever my sword could help her. And then, to my astonishment, even at that time of peril, I discovered the captain's wife, wielding a small sword, and the face of her was like to the face of a tiger, and her mouth was drawn and showed her teeth clenched. But she uttered no word nor cry, and I doubt not but that she had some vague idea that she worked her husband's vengeance. Then for a space I was as busy as any, and afterwards I ran to the buxom woman to demand the whereabouts of Mistress Madison, and she, in a very breathless voice, informed me that she had locked her in her room out of harm's way, and that I could have embraced the woman, for I had been sorely anxious to know that my sweetheart was safe. And presently the fight diminished, and so at last came to an end, the ship having drawn well away from the point and being now in the open water. After this I ran down to my sweetheart and opened her door, and for a space she wept, having her arms about my neck, for she had been in sore terror for me and for all the ship's company. But soon, drying her tears, she grew very indignant with her nurse for having locked her into the room and refused to speak to that good woman for near an hour. Yet I pointed out to her that she could be of very great use in dressing the wounds as had been received, and so she came back to her usual brightness, and brought out bandages and lint and ointment and thread, and was presently very busy. Now it was later that there rose a fresh commotion in the ship, for it had been discovered that the captain's wife was missing. At this the bosun and the second mate instituted a search, but she was nowhere to be found, and indeed none in the ship ever saw her again, at which it was presumed that she had been dragged over by some of the weed men, and so come upon her death. And at this there came a great prostration to my sweetheart that she would not be comforted for the space of nigh three days, by which time the ship had come clear of those strange seas, having left the incredible desolation of the weed continent far under our starboard counter. And so, after a voyage which lasted for nine and seventy days since getting under way, we came to the port of London, having refused all offers of assistance on the way. Now here I had to say farewell to my comrades of so many months and perilous adventures. Yet, being a man not entirely without means, I took care that each of them should have a certain gift by which to remember me, and I placed money in the hands of the buxom woman so that she could have no reason to stint my sweetheart, and she having, for the comfort of her conscience, taken her good man to the church, set up a little house upon the borders of my estate. But this was not until Mistress Madison had come to take her place at the head of my hall in the county of Essex. And one further thing there is of which I must tell. Should any, chancing to trespass upon my estate, come upon a man of very mighty proportions, albeit somewhat bent by age, seated comfortably at the door of his little cottage, 
Then shall they know him for my friend the bosun. For to this day do he and I foregather, and let our talk drift to the desolate places of this earth, pondering upon that which we have seen, the weed continent where reigns desolation and the terror of its strange habitants. After that we talk softly of the land where God hath made monsters after the fashion of trees. Then my children come about me, and so we change to other matters. For the little ones love not terror. And that concludes The Boats of the Glen Carrig by William Hope Hodgson, written 1907. Thanks for listening, crew.